Tonight we're going to uh, teach and preach through Matthew's account of the resurrection. So I want you to leave your Bible open, and we're going to try to go as quickly as we can, but I want you to leave your Bibles open, Matthew chapter 27, Matthew chapter 28. I'm going to um, point out some things that stood out to me recently in study, uh, maybe not some of the, the more well-known parts of the resurrection, but some things that were just a blessing to me as I was looking through the, the resurrection story. And uh, afterwards, we're going to make some practical applications as time allows. I want to give you some things to, to take away. But uh, let's look, please, Matthew chapter 27. Really, the story starts there in verse number 62. The Bible says, Now the next day that followed the day of the preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees came together unto Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember that that deceiver said while he was yet alive, After three days I will rise again. Command, therefore, that the sepulcher be made sure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away, and say unto the people, He is risen from the dead. So the last error shall be worse than the first. That was interesting to me. I think these men already knew that they had made a mistake in crucifying Jesus. And uh, they said, so the last error shall be worse than the first. And Pilate said unto them, ye have a watch, go your way, make it as sure as ye can. So they went and made the sepulcher sure, sealing the stone and setting a watch. I want you to think uh, with me for a moment about uh, the, the worry of these men that maybe Jesus would come out of the grave or maybe the disciples would steal him away. I want you to think about uh, what they said. They, they said, we need a watch. We need some guards. And, uh, and uh, they were told to steal the stone and to make it as sure as they could. And they set a watch. I was thinking about this. What kind of guards do you think they placed at the, at the tomb there? I mean, I'm, I'm sure that it wasn't the, the rookies, you know, it wasn't the, the ones who didn't have anything else to do. They guarded the tomb of Jesus. I mean, they sent out the Navy SEALs. They sent out, you know, the Chuck Norris's, the, the baddest of the bad. I mean, they put them there. I was reading where it says setting a watch. Uh, some people say that that watch meant four soldiers. We Here in Matthew's account, we see one soldier and others accounts some more. I don't know how many were there, but, but I promise promise you this, these were intimidating guards. These were the type of men that you would not want to trespass on a piece of property that they were guarding. It says that they, they sealed the stone, a Roman seal. To break that Roman seal would be punishable as a capital offense. It would be punishable in some cases by death. And so we, we see the scene here is secure. Let's keep on reading. The Bible says, in the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. I want you to notice uh, in verse number one, there's so many thoughts here. I'll give them to you quickly, but, but I love the very first verse. It says, in the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, the end of the Sabbath, the first day of the, of the week, I love the thought that the resurrection turned our attention from the Sabbath and towards the first day of the week, from the law that binds us and restricts us and to the grace that gives freedom, 
from the rules and regulations and, uh, and to the relationship that we could have with Christ. I think about our friend Anisha's testimony and, and the whole thing was so good. But one of the parts that really got me was when he was describing going to that temple uh, every Saturday night. And in his own words, he said it was just do, 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 do. And he was working and doing and trying. Yet that burden was heavy, uh, always working, never accomplishing anything. But friend, I love the fact that we're not working towards something. Tonight, we're working from something. We're not working trying to get to heaven. We're not working trying to find acceptance with God. We're not working, never accomplishing. We are working from the forgiveness, from the cross, from salvation. What a great God we serve. Not in the temple, but now the first day of the week, we don't have to go to a temple. We don't have to keep all these rules and regulations for forgiveness. Now we get to come to a church. Now we get to fellowship with each other, worship God on the first day of the week. It's a great thought, all because of the resurrection. Let me say this. The fact that we're not working to something, but from something makes me want to do more for the Lord, not less. Hey, I'm not trying to abuse the grace of God. The fact that he's already forgiven me, he's already saved me, he's already said, he's done everything that needs to be done makes me want to serve him more, more. You see who was there? Mary was there, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. They weren't expecting to see an empty tomb. You read in a parallel passage, they were wondering to themselves, who's gonna roll the stone away? But they show up, the guards were there, the Marys were there, but I think about who wasn't there. Peter wasn't there. John wasn't there. The disciples weren't there. They missed out. Man, if I could choose one event to see, I'm telling you the resurrection would be pretty high on the list. Yet they missed out. They weren't there. One was dead. Peter was in uh, shame. Fear of fail, he had failed. He was feeling guilt. Thomas was doubting. There was all kinds of fear and confusion. I'm thankful that Mary Magdalene and the other Mary was there, but, but boy, I feel for those who were not there. Let's keep on reading. The Bible says, behold, there is a, gr a great earthquake. Man, I, I, pastor, I got arrested by that this week. This great earthquake. That's what I wanted to see. You know, it's the second time that the earth quaked. The earth quaked at Calvary. The ground shook at Calvary. I was reading uh, some book somewhere, and it said that the ground quaked at Calvary, and it, it shook with grief as the Creator died there on the cross. And then I was reading that it shook again on resurrection. It shook with uh, joy as the creator, as Jesus rose from the dead. Boy, I think about that. I think about the earth quaking. I think about how it shook with pleasure when he rose again. I like to think that Jesus descended into the underworld. And, and the Bible says he that ascended first descended. And I like to think that he went down into the underworld. And, and there uh, he traded the grave clothes for a royal robe. He traded the napkin uh, for a crown and he marched through hell. Those pierced feet marched through hell and every time he took a step, cheered on by the Old Testament saints, every time he took a step, the very granite bedrock of the earth was shaking and trembling like a bowl of jelly. Even the earth didn't know what to do. It shook with pleasure as he rose from the dead. And now he's there. 
He dispatches angels. Angels are dispatched. Look at verse number two. The Bible says there was a great earthquake, earthquake for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. I think I could spend the rest of the time right here. Imagine as this angel, I like to think it was one of the 12 legions of angels that could have been called down. Matthew chapter number 20, uh, Matthew chapter number 26, verse number 53. Jesus said, thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my father and he shall presently give me more than 12 legions of angels. Oh, as Christ was on the cross, I believe every angel in heaven was peering over the balcony of heaven, just waiting for the word, just, just waiting for any hint of a sign of rescue. They would have charged the earth and freed the Son of God. They, they would have loved to have done that. The Bible says in Matthew 13, 49, so shall it be at the end of the world, the angel shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the just. These angels were waiting at Calvary to free their beloved, to free the Son of God, but they stood there in obedience. And now they're dispatched. A couple of them, one here in Matthew's account, he's sent to roll away the stone. And man, he rolls that stone away. He doesn't roll, roll it away so Jesus can come out. He, Jesus is already out. He rolls the stone away so that the world can take a look inside. Man, it's a wonderful thought. And the Bible says that he sat on the stone. He just sat there. Can you see an angel shrouded in light? I don't know what kind of angel this was, but if these guards were the Navy SEALs, I, I think uh, the father sent a pretty, pretty stout angel and uh, sent him down there. He rolls away the stone and he's just sitting on the stone, probably swinging his feet back and forth. I think he had a grin on his face. I, I think it was almost like he was looking at those guards who the Bible says were, were laying down. Look at verse number uh, three. The Bible says his countenance was like lightning, this angel, his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him, the keepers did shake and became as dead men. All of a sudden, these, these guards, the best of the best, are laying down scared to death, acting like they're dead. And I think that angel's just kicking his feet, saying, go ahead, make your move. I mean, uh, come on. And uh, hey, no power on earth could roll that stone back and cover up what had happened, the power of God. We see the angels. It's a wonderful thing. He sits upon the stone. Look at what he says. This is, this is interesting. The angel, verse number five, answered and said unto the women, fear not ye, for I know that you seek Jesus, which was crucified. He is not here. He is risen, as he said. Come see the place where the Lord lay and go quickly and tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead. This could probably be a sermon in itself. But he says, I want you to come and see and then go quickly and tell. You know, we're all about soul winning here. We're all about missions. We're all about getting out the gospel. And I believe in that. And I, I want to be better at that. We need to have more of that, especially in this day. But I want to say this, we'll never convincingly go and tell until we first come and see. Boy, there's something about that personal experience of taking a look inside and, and seeing the power of God and having that relationship with God. It's one thing to, to just uh, do as you're told, but when you've uh, seen for yourself the love of God, the forgiveness of God, the mercy of God, when you have that relationship with God, you can convincingly go and tell. And that's exactly what he charges 
Mary to do, go and tell. And look what he says in verse number seven, go quickly, tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. Behold, he goeth before you into Galilee. There shall you see him. Lo, I have told you. And, uh, and they departed quickly from the sepulcher with fear and great joy and did run to bring his disciples word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them saying all hail. And they came and held him by the feet and worshiped him. Then said Jesus unto them, be not afraid. Go tell my brethren that they go into Galilee and there they shall see me. I think I'll get to this at the end of the message, but this is the first place in the Bible where Jesus refers to his disciples as brethren the first time. We're called brethren all throughout the rest of the New Testament, but this is the first time that Jesus refers to his disciples as brethren. And think about who he was referring to. He was talking about those who had missed out, those who should have been there, those who were afraid, those who had failed, those who were guilty, ashamed, confused, doubting even. What does he say? He doesn't have some condemnation. He says, go tell my brethren. I love them. I've forgiven them. Go tell my brethren. In spite of all their faults and failures and fears, they were still brethren. Church, don't ever believe the lie that God doesn't love you. Don't ever believe the lie that you've gone so far that somehow he doesn't care anymore and somehow I deal with teenagers a lot and oftentimes when a teenager uh, makes a mistake or when they fall into sin, they, they begin to believe the lie of the devil that they're 17 years old and they've gone too far and there's nothing for them. No, let me tell you something. Uh, if you're saved, God looks at you and he says, go tell my brethren, my brethren, I love it. And so they go to do exactly that. Look at verse number 11. Now when they were going, behold, some of the watch came into the city and showed them the chief priests all the things that they were done. So if you can see this in your mind, if you can see two groups of people converging on this city, you have the, the women are running. They're bringing the greatest fact that ever existed, the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. And they're running, and then you have the watchmen. They're coming into the city as well. Soon they're going to propagate the greatest lie ever that the disciples stole them away. But you have these two groups of people running into the city. Verse number 12, and when they were assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave large money unto the soldiers, saying, Say ye, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we slept. And if this come to the governor's ears, we will persuade him and secure you. So they took the money and did as they were taught. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. They decided, these soldiers met with the chief priest, the Sanhedrin. They decided to tell a lie. They told him the truth. They no doubt told them what had happened. But these chief priests, the Sanhedrin, they decide to tell a lie. And they come up with the most pathetic story that you've ever heard. They said, let's, let's do this. Let's uh, tell them that you fell asleep, that the disciples came, stole them away. It's a crazy story. I mean, it's ludicrous, really, when you think about it. If you take that story to a court of law, it's gonna get, it's gonna get uh, torn apart in seconds. They fell asleep. I mean, the best of the best guards fell asleep. And the disciples came. Could you imagine them being cross-examined in a court of law? I can see some lawyer like David Gibbs, you know, uh, just taking his time and saying, so the disciples came and stole them away. Is that right? Yes. And you were asleep. Is that right? Yes. 
but you know it was the disciples, right? Right. But you were asleep. Uh, yes, but we saw them. I mean, just right there. I mean, it was, a, it was a pathetic story. And imagine this. It doesn't even make sense. I mean, why? Who robs a grave and, and takes the time to unwrap the body, leaving the grave clothes, takes the time to, to take the napkin and fold it, lay it on the shelf? No, no, that doesn't happen. And, and let me stop and say this. There's one way to fix this whole problem right here. If I'm the chief priest and if I'm worried about this, there's one way to fix this whole problem. You arrest those disciples. There's 11 of them now. You interrogate them. Surely one will break and tell you where the body is. If they could produce a body, all, all the problem goes away. But there is no body. And they know it. And so they come up with this pathetic lie. I want to give you now, in the few moments we have left, some practical thoughts. Just some practical things to think about tonight on Easter. Number one, I don't want to miss out on all that God has for me. I don't want to miss out on all that God has for me. Boy, there's a part of me that feels for these disciples. They love the Lord. And they really did. They, they served him, and eventually they would give their lives for Jesus. But in this moment, they missed out on something wonderful. They missed out because of fear. They missed out because of guilt of failure. Uh, in this moment, they, they missed out because they did not believe. They were confused. I don't want to miss out on all that God has for me. And church, let me stop and say, I still believe that God has great things uh, uh, for, our, for our church and for me and for you and for the gospel. These are great days that we're living in. I love what pastor has said recently. Uh, at times like this, these, you can look at the problems or you can look at the opportunities in the midst of the problems. And God has great things in store for our church in these days. And I don't want to miss out. I don't want to miss out because I was afraid. I don't want to miss out. <laughs> Recently, I was asked to preach somewhere, and I thought, oh, I don't know. And pastor said, he said, you know, I was thinking about Mother Teresa. And Mother Teresa, if God could protect her uh, it, there in the alleys of Calcutta and give her a life of 96 years or 98 years, he said, I think God can protect us. And man, it just convicted me. And God used that in my heart. And I thought, I don't want to miss out on anything because I'm afraid. I don't want to miss out on what God has for me. It was John R. Rice who dreamed that he went to heaven. And as he went to heaven, there was a great warehouse there and an angel was escorting him through heaven. And, and uh, they went to this warehouse. It was massive. All kinds of things in the warehouse, money and uh, printing presses and, and materials, all types of, from floor to ceiling, this warehouse was packed. And in the dream, John R. Rice said, what is this? And the angel said, these are all the things that God wanted to give you. And that he never did because you didn't ask. Friend, I don't want to miss out on anything. We have nothing. Hey, think about this. We have nothing to be afraid of. Man, you look at this resurrection story. You look at the power of, of the angels, the power of God. You think about the earth quaking at the very steps of Christ as he walked. That is the power that lives inside of us. We have nothing to be afraid of. Number two, even at my lowest point, I'm still brethren. <laughs> Even at my lowest point, Jesus still looks at me and says, that's my brother. Man, I love that. Amen. I can remember when I was leaving West Virginia, and I'll tell the story quickly. A 
teenager who had gotten away from God. He was out of church for about a year. A young man, he heard that I was leaving and moving to Hammond, and he, uh, he pulled in to our driveway. Literally, as we were loading the moving truck, he pulled into our driveway. He came out, and, and I was moving some things, and I saw him, and, and I went to go shake his hand, and, and he, he, he went like this. He said, no, 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 no. He was covered in head to toe with soot, just dirt, just grime. I hadn't seen him in about a year. He had gotten away from the Lord, and, and there he was, covered in head to toe with dirt, grime. He said, no, 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 don't, don't shake my hand. He said, I'm too dirty. And he made this statement. He said, this is my life now. This is my life now. He said, I should be a preacher. He was called to preach as a teenager, surrendered to that call, got away from God, and now he was cleaning out oil tankers with a, with a heavy pressure hose, and, and uh, he was cleaning them out, and the, the oil residue would get on his body, and no matter how much he scrubbed, he couldn't get it off. And, and he said, don't shake my hand. He said, uh, this is my life now. He looked at me and he said, is it true? Is it true that you're leaving? And I said, it is. God's called me away. And this young man began to cry and he said, man, I can't believe it. He said, what am I going to do now? I can remember shaking his hand and bringing him in for a hug. You know what? In that moment, I did not care about the oil and the soot and the dirt. I love him. Love him today. I loved him then and I love him today. And I hugged him and I said, you can still go back to church. You can still live for God. Friend, as much as I love that young man and all his faults and failures, that's how much Jesus loves us and more. He looks at us and he says, you're my brethren. I love that thought. Isn't the love of Jesus something wonderful? Next, I have this practical thought. Number one, I said, I don't want to miss out on all that God has for me. Secondly, even at my lowest point, he still calls me brethren. Number three, pride steals so much from a man. Think about these Sanhedrin, these chief priests. These were not ignorant people. These were clever men. These were cunning men. These were educated men. And yet they come up with that foolish story, that silly lie. Why? I'm going to tell you why. Because they were too proud to admit that they were wrong. Pride steals so much from a man. They had backed themselves into a corner because of their pride, because of their refusal to admit that they were wrong and God was right. I have this jotted down. God can humiliate me, but only I can humble me. You know, you look throughout the Bible and you see God. God can bring humiliation. God can bring circumstances and humiliate a man. You think of Nebuchadnezzar and others. You think of Jonah and so many others. But watch this. Only we can humble ourselves. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. A verse that has been quoted often is uh, the verse in Chronicles that says, if my people, which are called by my name, and listen to what it says, shall humble themselves. Pride can steal so much from a man. I got thinking about uh, God, how God wants us to be humbled at this time. Next, I'll never convincingly go and tell until I first come and see. <laughs> see, when I see for myself the power of God working in my life, fear becomes faith. You know, these disciples weren't there. 
for the rest of their lives, they lived for God. They would die for Christ. Thomas in India, Paul, Peter crucified upside down. Oh, they had seen for themselves eventually. Transformation from fear to martyrdom. You know, people don't die for a lie. I, I have this verse here, uh, John chapter number 14. I think this became their creed, John 14, verse number 19. Yet a little while, and the world seeth me no more, but ye see me, because I live, ye shall live also. You need to come and see for yourself. Friend, let me encourage you, church family, uh, take this time, take this pause in life to stop living off the preacher's sermons and stop living off the encouragement you get in church. And, and listen, take this time to get into this book for yourself and come and see, come and see the power of God. You'll never convincingly go and tell until you first come and see. I have this thought jotted down. No amount of money is worth a clear conscience. <laughs> Think about those soldiers. Somebody said every man has his price. Did you notice what the Bible says there in Matthew chapter 28? I'll, I'll show it to you. I, I thought it was funny, maybe because I work with teenagers all the time. But, but it says in Matthew 28, verse number uh, 12, it says they had taken counsel and they gave large money unto the soldiers. Funny, these same chief priests, they bought off Judas for the price of a common slave. But when it, come, when it came to uh, telling this lie, it, it required large money. Large money. But no amount of money is worth a clear conscience. Long after that money was spent, those soldiers knew that they had told a lie. When the money was gone, I can imagine every time they heard a bump in the night, they shook with fear. They thought, oh man, is that an angel coming back? Every time they dreamed a nightmare about the lie that they told, no amount of money is worth a clear conscience. For a long time, I had a saying, and I probably need to put it back in an office, but I had a saying that simply said, I have no greater peace than laying my head down at night knowing that I have done right. There's no greater peace than that. To walk in integrity, to walk in truth, it's priceless. So church family, as we examine Matthew's account of the resurrection, there's so much there. I love the fact that we're not working towards something, we're working from something. I love the fact that, that uh, those angels were there and they were happy to be there and they rolled back that stone and there was great power and the earth quaked and I love everything about it. But I want to remind you of some practical thoughts. Practically speaking, I don't want to miss out because of fear or unbelief or doubt or worry or failure. I don't want to miss out on what God has for me. Even at my lowest point, I'm still brethren to Jesus. Pride steals so much from a man. And I'll never convincingly go and tell until I first come and see. And finally, there's no amount of money that is worth a clear conscience.